There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and welcome to Reconsider. You're either in one or another state of mind right now. You're either torn up by the result of the election or you're ecstatic. But regardless of which side you sit on, chances are you think that through this process, there's something that's not quite working right with the with the nomination process and the way that we vote in America. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We're going to talk about how it's difficult to understand what President Trump will look like. And uh, we will still ask you to reconsider a few things. Yeah, so obviously it was a uh... Uh, nail biter night last night and another big shocker right and this is the this is the literally the third time on our little podcast here that we've said holy smokes the result was way different from what everyone expected once again the thing that was pulling ahead and looked safe got hosed once again the thing that the media supported very widely lost this is a for in, in case it's not clear this is a totally unprecedented result trump was massively outspent uh, he had basically no uh, newspaper endorsements, whereas Clinton had uh, obviously a ton, and he won nonetheless. And it's so it's it's kind of changed everything about how folks like Nate Silver need to do their job because this is sort of the third time in a row that we've been really far off on what the win was going to look like. Yeah, Nate Silver, the uh, founding editor at Five Thirty Eight, which put together these meta analyses that we've almost certainly referenced before in shows. But the idea is you collect several polls, and by combining them, your outcome becomes more accurate. Nate Silver, to his credit, and really I think to the credit of Five Thirty Eight, has repeatedly pointed out how the degree of uncertainty in this race really makes the polls perhaps less effective, even his meta analysis, and he's tried to emphasize how uncertainty works, what uncertainty means in the context of these polls. And nonetheless, following the live blog last night on 538, everyone was really shocked how far off their meta-analysis was, their predictions were. So what, what of course happened was that more people showed up to vote for Trump in a lot of states than had polled. So states that seemed very safe for Clinton, particularly Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, ended up going Trump. Michigan will probably go Trump as well. None of that has happened in a pretty long time. So it's it's very new for Republicans to be taking these states. It's very surprising, uh, in particular because the demographics of these states haven't changed so much. Um, North Carolina, a lot of people thought was going to go Trump because the demographics have changed to be a lot more young, college-educated, liberal, stuff like that. So what's what's clear is that it's it's given the massive sampling, it's unlikely that the pollsters just called only Democrats, you know, like statistically called way more Democrats than they did Republicans. What's likely is a few things happen. One, they sorted people incorrectly as likely voters. So turnout in rural areas in a lot of these places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin was much higher than it's been in the past. And rural places tend to vote Republican. So they were clearly like more motivated than normal, even though the get out the vote machine for Donald Trump was not that strong. So that's really interesting. It's actually a little bit like the Bernie Sanders race, where a lot of people came out of the woodwork, even though he wasn't running around knocking on doors. Uh, but obviously, Trump got more than Sanders. And the second likely thing is that there may be a shy Tory factor, which we talked about on our polling WTF episode, which is in the 1990s, people started noticing that the Tories or the, conser the conservative party of the United Kingdom consistently outperformed its polls because 
and, and the the idea of the stratory factor is that the media makes it or the media paints being a conservative is somewhat unacceptable and it's definitely been the case that the media has painted being a trump supporter is unacceptable in the united states and based on that public pressure people don't actually change their mind people are just quiet about it and so what probably happened was a lot of people said they weren't sure or they weren't voting or maybe even they supported clinton but then they went out and voted trump anyway and so that led to the surprise which we've now had with three major votes in very recent history. Brexit was anticipated to fail to remain in the European Union, and they will be exiting. In Colombia, as we talked about on our episode about the FARC peace deal, there was a two-to-one margin anticipating a yes vote, and it went no by a very slim margin. And now the U.S. presidential election, which... You know, we talked about this a little bit on the polling episode, but while there were prior referendums that showed that polls could be really quite wrong, one of the things to consider was that there was no benchmark for these polls. And there there are benchmarks for presidential elections. They happen on a regular basis. You can get a sense of what voter turnout has been. And despite that relative increase in predictability compared to referendums, got them completely wrong again. Yeah, what's so interesting about this is that the typical conventional wisdom is that when thinking about a really radical choice, a really radical departure from the status quo or a radical departure from the path that we're on, the conventional wisdom is that people get excited about it. And then when they get to the polls, they get cold feet and they go, "Uh, maybe I'm not maybe I'm not ready for this. And then they tend to vote for the more status quo candidate of which Clinton was clearly the one. But in the case of Brexit and FARC, and or the FARC peace deal and this election, it went the opposite of what we normally expect. So, uh, what you know, what are the overall results? Well, right now the estimates have Trump at two seventy nine, which puts him over the edge. Clinton at two twenty eight. Trump will probably snag Michigan. Clinton has already conceded, so it's it's over. In case anyone has any delusions, Trump will be president. You know, barring getting hit by a bus, etc. The Republicans have maintained a majority in the Senate and obviously the House as well. So right now, Team Red has both chambers of Congress and the presidency, which typically would mean that, you know, a a typical Republican agenda would be able to push its way through. Obviously, what you're going to need here is president and Congress getting along, which, you know, if we look at the past few months, the past year, really, uh, hasn't been a thing. Established Republican or establishment Republicans don't like Trump, and he doesn't like them. So they'll they'll probably find a way to sort it out. But to a large extent, uh, they don't agree with a lot of what he wants to do, uh, and therefore it's it's not going to be your typical you know one party lockstep united front for the next two years, just pushing through whatever it w- it wants to do. Frankly, as far as domestic policy goes, I have no idea what's going to happen. I think it's very difficult to tell in most realms of policy, maybe in foreign policy, if you base your guess on what Trump has said before in speeches and and during his campaign, you can anticipate something like isolationist policies, tariffs to try to bring in the short term some jobs, some industries back to America. He's talked about trade wars with China and all of these policies historically, for example, when they've been implemented in South America tend to play politically favorably in the short term and then fail miserably in the long term, create rampant inflation and just completely and utterly destroy countries' economies. So I am of the mind, and you can call this a bias if you'd like, that isolationist trade policies are extraordinarily dangerous for a country's economy and therefore a country's political political landscape, even though in the short term, such policies may appeal to people who think that their jobs are coming back. But man, manufacturing, at least certain types of manufacturing, certain types of jobs are not coming back to America because of the pace of technological advancement. Tariffs are not going to fix that. Yeah, to some extent, I mean, if to focus on this a little bit, it's probably the case from the, the limited research I've done that automation has more to do with lost jobs in the manufacturing sector than trade. So to some extent, even if it does come back to the United States, uh, you know, an auto factory is mostly robots now. And, you know, Elon Musk, for example, is building a gigaplant that's almost all robots and almost operates dark. 
is the word, which is you don't even need people there. You know, so the efficacy of those policies aside, Trump's message about trade was, I think, based on the exit polls I've looked at, which weren't all that accurate, but his message on trade seems to be the thing that put him over the line. You know, I think that, you know, I live in Cambridge, so I'm, I don't, I don't know any Trump supporters that live here. Uh, if they're here, they're pretty shy about it. So I know a lot of Clinton supporters that didn't like Trump a lot. And it's often the case, I think, that it's pretty easy to assume that most of Trump support or a big chunk of Trump support is primarily driven by racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, stuff like that. And, you know, probably sexism. And, you know, it's certainly not the case that anyone can make a credible claim that there are not racist, sexist, xenophobes, Islamophobes that are part of Trump's support. Because they are. Yeah, they're definitely there. What's really interesting is that, you know, Trump snagged places like Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Iowa, probably Michigan. All these places voted for Barack Obama resoundingly. And so they voted for a black guy, a Democrat, pretty resoundingly, and they flipped. And so we have to talk about who are the people that ended up flipping from voting for Barack Obama to then voting for Donald Trump. Because those are the guys that are really interesting. Because to be fair, the racists weren't going to be voting for Obama in the first place anyway. You know, they were going to vote for the white guy. That's what racists do. Now, um, so looking at the exit polls, you know, we can we can see a little bit of who came out for Trump in ways that were a bit surprising. You know, I think so the, the story is that, oh, look at, you know, it's angry white men that are supporting Trump. And no doubt Trump has angry white men. But who else does he have? And this is going to be a big reconsider moment in the show, and we'll do a few others. But as Eric mentioned, he's recording from Cambridge. I've lived in Los Angeles and the San Francisco area. So while we try to be as neutral and as objective as possible, another one of our core philosophies at Reconsider is to state our potential biases up front. So something that I am very aware of is that my echo chamber on social media, for example, is almost certainly all going to lean liberal. So to that extent, some of the reconsider moments that we posit to you on the show will probably be aimed, at least some of them, more towards a liberal crowd. And that's also because demographically, something like 80 plus percent of podcast listeners tend to lean towards what's generally been considered the left. Yeah. Although we did just ask uh, Trump supporters, in particular, if they're economic Trump supporters, to reconsider whether Trump is going to be able to deliver on his promises, although possibly a little bit late for that. You know, and at the end of the day, Donald Trump is so inexperienced that the next few months he is, his policies are likely to shift as he finds people who are willing to work with him and talk with him about what's going on. But if we if we look at if we look at exit polls, 42% of women voted for Trump, right? Which is significantly less than the percent of men that voted for Trump, which is 53, but it's still a large plurality of women voted for Trump. It's also the case that for people 30 to 44, 42% of them voted for Trump. So it wasn't just old people. If we look at race, it's significantly more divided. Um, 21% of non-white people voted for Trump. Uh, and so, for example, 8% of black people voted for Trump. And you may say that's tiny. But it's also worth noting that 9% of black people voted for Mitt Romney, who was you know very close to or who ran a close race with Obama. And so only slightly fewer people or only a slightly smaller portion of the black population voted for Trump than voted for Romney. Now, the black turnout was much lower than during the Obama elections. Latinos, 29% voted for him, Asians, 29 and other races, which is going to include uh, the Arab population and the Native American population, 37%. And the, the last one worth highlighting is that uh, those who have a college degree but not a postgrad degree, 45% of them voted for Trump to 49 Clinton. So that was so like a lot of people who are educated, who are of color, who are women, they voted for Trump. And I think that's it's very important to in order to if you're one of those people scratching your head wondering like how did Trump possibly win if it was just only old white men? It wasn't just only old white men, and it's very important to be able to get into these people's heads and what they're concerned about and what they think Trump is going to deliver for them. Because again, if you're one of our left-wing cosmopolitan listeners, it's probably the case that you mostly just hear stuff about Donald Trump's comments about women and people of color, and you don't hear as much about his comments on economics. And those are probably what resonated with women, with people of color, um, and with people who you know have college degrees. Yeah, I think this is a really important point to drill down on. 
if you are in the shocked, flabbergasted, crying to yourself during the day camp, you've probably asked yourself once or twice, like, how could anyone possibly vote for Trump? That's one perspective, right? And as Eric mentioned, not all of these folks were are just racist, hateful people. Some of them are, but lots of them are almost certainly kind, family-oriented oriented people who, for one reason or another, have found themselves in a really challenging situation and don't see things getting better in the, in the near future. So I think the thing to recognize, and the thing that I'm beginning to see my friends recognize, so maybe this is creating an important moment on the left or in America generally, is that there has been really a great degree of suffering going on in the country that has not been obvious to certain types of people. I mean, we talk about blue states, red states, but more recently people are talking about blue cities and red everything else. I mean, our country is divided in a way maybe that we don't generally conceptualize it. So there is the suffering that has existed that has become exacerbated since the financial crisis in 2008 that I think people have to some degree recognized, but the extent to that suffering has not really been drilled home until now. And the silver lining to this, if you are a little shocked and flabbergasted, is that since people are taking notice across the political spectrum, perhaps this means that we are finally going to be able to have a reasonable dialogue with one another and listen to each other's concerns from the perspective of, you know, fellow human beings, neighbors, Americans, rather than wedged political parties, the other side's the enemy. Yeah, I think to your point about the divide between urban and rural, um, there, it is the case that the urban um, urban areas in the United States have seen much more of the recovery than a lot of the rural ones, particularly, hey, let's look at Rust Belt, Ohio, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Pennsylvania, these places that, you know, Indiana aside, these places that often vote Democrat, they have not done as well during the last eight years under Obama. Their, you know, recovery hasn't come back. They feel threatened by, uh, they feel threatened by like anti-carbon policies because a lot of these places like mine uh, oil, they mine coal. Those are their jobs. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of these places, there are towns that have like shriveled up and died. Um, and people are, people are acutely aware of that. For a, a, I will make a bit of conjecture here. For those people that live in big urban areas that are often democratic, a lot of them just aren't aware of this on a day to day basis. Like, think about, you know, if you're one of our listeners, um, in particular in an urban area, think about how many like blue collar workers are your friends. Think about how many coal miners, how many truck drivers, how many people that just like work in a factory and they stand next to a machine all day and press buttons on it sometimes. You know, how many of those people do you know? And do you understand the pain that they're going through? Do you understand what the recovery has been like for them? And of course, do you understand the statistics of how the recovery has looked in different regions and what unemployment looks like in different regions? And also what stuff like disability looks like in different regions, because to some extent, disability has taken over as long-term unemployment. The, the economic situation is very interesting. It's very patchy. And I think a lot of people who are shocked here when they're looking at the top-level unemployment numbers and saying it got a lot better, um, you know, I think, I think there's some cognitive dissonance between just looking at that top-level number and also understanding how things break down across the country. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Just because one line trends a certain way, if you break that line into 10 lines, maybe you see some more patterns, right? And speaking of... Uh, speaking of breaking lines, so we, of course, have an electoral vote victory for Donald Trump. Probably going to be over 300. Pretty decisive, right? Well, it turns out, as of 12.42 p.m. Eastern Time on the 9th of November, the popular vote margin is 1.2% in Clinton's favor. So, during the 2000 election, Bush won by a razor margin with the Electoral College and lost by a razor margin in the popular vote. It looks like in this election, Donald Trump will win by a hefty margin in the Electoral College and lose by a significant margin in the popular vote. I mean, 1.3% is not all that much, but it, but it's like definitely the case that this is the biggest, if these numbers hold, uh, and I think something like 98% of votes have counted, 
if these numbers hold, this will be one of the biggest one of the biggest dissonances between the Electoral College and the popular vote in a long time. And it's going to I mean it's just there's no doubt it's definitely going to like reignite debates over whether the Electoral College should even exist anymore. Yeah, and Eric, you wrote a recent article that's somewhat on this topic, and I, I want to delve into this a little bit more in depth, but just before we change subjects, I want to come back to the this difference, this delta between uh, urban folks and rural people who perhaps have been hit a little bit more by the crisis than is immediately evident for people who live in cities. And And you make this point, and sometimes I get this retort, which is, okay, fine, but we don't know what Donald Trump stands for. We don't know what he's going to do. We have no idea if he's actually going to solve these people's problems. And here's how I've thought about it. There's this concept called prospect theory. It's a behavioral economics concept, and it basically goes like this. Through some empirical studies, we know that people tend to overweight the loss of stuff compared to the gain of stuff. So if you have... $10, losing $5, it will hurt you more than gaining $5 will help you. So that means that if you have a lot of stuff to lose, you are going to be generally risk averse because you're not going to want to lose it because losing it will hurt you more than the chance of gaining will help you. The converse of that is if you have very little to lose, you become more inclined to take bigger risks, more gambles. And I think that's that's exactly what's at play here, is people who have be, become disenfranchised and found their circumstances become increasingly dire over the last eight years look at their future and see nothing changing for them. They don't see the direction of their economic plight moving the other way with with a status quo politician like Hillary Clinton, and they say, okay, well, in this case, a gamble, whatever the risk, is worth it to me because I don't have as much to lose, even if that risks breaking the system first before we get there. So I think I think prospect theory is just an interesting way to look at the the logic of a Trump supporter in a way that really makes intuitive sense in terms of self-interest. Yeah, and why are we why are we harping on this so much? I think that you know, obviously, obviously, the X that we are here to grind at reconsider is you know helping people one make better policy decisions and two helping the country have a better dialogue and, and be less polarized. And given how divisive this election was, um, and given how much, given really like how much the, the I'll just come out and say it, like the media has been really tough on Trump supporters. Uh, people who are in the more flabbergasted camp have one of two options going forward. And this this applies even more to Democratic leadership and even Republican leadership than it does just regular voters. But the leadership responds to voters. So we, we have two choices. One of them is to tell ourselves a story that feels good right now, which is that, oh, my God, look at all these terrible racist people. They're so bad. Uh, they need to be destroyed in some way. Right. They need to be destroyed. They need to be suppressed because they're they're motivated by hate. And uh, hate is bad, and we're not going to engage them because they're hateful. The other option is to recognize the like very real economic stuff uh, that's behind their choice, um, the pain they feel, and the risks they decided to take, and to decide how are how are we as a you know more establishment core um, from whatever party you're in, if you're part of that establishment, how are we as an establishment core going to like engage these people and actually deal. Like, one, actually solve their problems, and two, be convincing in our communication about how we are solving their problems. And that I think that choice is pretty stark right now, and I think it's very important for the long term. Like, we, as Xander said, like, we have the opportunity to see each other as real people, but we also have the opportunity to dig in even more than ever before. And so, whatever you feel about Trump and Clinton, I think... It is important to separate how you feel about Trump and Clinton from how you feel about Trump supporters and Clinton supporters, because they're very, you know, they're like ultimately very different. There aren't a bunch of, there aren't 60 million Hillary Clintons running around and there aren't 60 million Donald Trumps running around. There are one of each. And then there are a whole bunch of Americans who like have normal lives um, 
and you know have pains and have worries about the future uh and they you know they each made a decision about who's going to be the person to heal their pain or alleviate the risk that they see going forward yeah and i think you can go even one step further than that and as we try to move into a time where we're healing the divide instead of fomenting it in order to listen to what is often the legitimate complaints of a lot of folks who are living very different lives than you it's important to try to detach them as a person from their political opinions because if you can't do that then if you disagree with their political opinions you're going to tend to see this person in a certain light but suffering is a universal human experience and if we can find a way to have empathy for these people even and i say these these people meaning you know people on the left if you're on the right people on the right if you're on the left then we can find new ways to listen to each other and hopefully find effective policy solutions because you cannot find effective policy solutions without dialogue and you cannot have generative dialogue if you don't have compassion for the person you're talking to and you know eric you're you kind of fall into this realist school of foreign policy and you you kind of touched on the tip of something that i just want to want to delve into a little bit more before we hop over to the subject of of the voting process the nomination process which is you know this idea that there are structural issues at play what do i mean by structural issues well well i'll tell you an anecdote to kind of explain it i I was out the other night and i was asked do you think that people are generally intrinsically good or bad and here was my response i said neither i think that Human beings are a type of animal that in social groups tend to act certain ways when in large social groups and societies when they're placed under certain pressures tend to act in similar ways. And we can see some of those similarities throughout history. Now, of course, the, the exact outcome is never the same, but there are trends that you can identify. So when you put a large group of people into this very difficult situation where they're struggling to feed their family, where they're struggling to get by day to day, well, what do you do? People tend to try to find someone who's responsible for their cir- for their circumstance, a culprit, a pariah. And as Eric has written about in depth in his book Wedged and on the Reconsider blog, this type of mentality creates an even greater in-group, out-group divide. And from the outside, we tend to interpret this divide, this search for pariah, frequently as racism and bigotry. So we should absolutely continue to denounce and speak out against racism and bigotry, obviously. What I'm saying is I think that there are circumstances that you can place large groups of people in where this is going to be what you expect. And I think this is kind of what you can expect given the circumstances of a certain type of individual, a certain type of society or sub-society placed under certain structural pressures. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yes. <laughs> Nothing to add to that. <laughs> The last thing I want to say on this is that, you know, I think we'd be having this conversation regardless of who won, right? We'd we'd have this situation where half the country is looking at the other half going, how could you have made this decision? That's how everybody felt going into this. That's how people are feeling coming out of it. Just one side said, ooh, we snuck by with a win. 
on the other side saying, oh my god, we actually lost, and I didn't imagine it was possible. Because I think, you know, again, almost nobody saw this coming. Um, so, it, you know, I, I so we're talking a lot about, again, Trump supporters specifically because we're, you know, we live in these liberal areas and we're more exposed to some of the the derision against them than we are exposed to the derision against Clinton supporters. Uh, so the latter we can't say as much about, but, you know, for those Trump supporters listening, you know, at the end of the day, Clinton supporters are making choices in the same way that you are. They're looking at pain they feel. They're looking at the pain that the people around them feel, the risks they feel, uh, the fear they feel um, about the future and about what the other candidate's going to be doing. Uh, you know, they made a decision with the same kind of calculus that you did. So, Eric, great, great conclusion on that topic. I And I, I think that we need to reconsider how we think about, you know, what has been the other in our country and start listening to each other more. Hopping to another subject, you recently wrote an article on the Reconsider blog about voting and the nomination process and how different types of voting systems or schemas tend to result in different outcomes. I, I'd love for you to talk a, bit, a little bit more about that. Great question. So I didn't talk about the Electoral College. Um, I think that is a tired topic. We understand it. You know, we understand that it disaggregates, you know, it, it takes chunks of voting and then it turns them into basically winner take all. So it disaggregates the popular vote from the actual outcome. Yeah. And it's it's got an old, long history, in particular because when we were formed, we were a, un, you know, we were a United States. We were a bunch of, it was almost like the EU, right? We were, in particular when we were a confederacy, it was a bunch of almost countries, sovereign states, and each of them would choose, hey, who is the, you know, who's the person that my state wants to be president? And it, it kind of made sense. And we operate a lot less like that now, though we, we still are a federal republic. Um, we still have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff where states make decisions independently. And so, you know, the argument over the, like, should the popular vote determine the president, pretty much every other country does it. You know the, you know, you know the structure. You can make up your mind as to whether you think the electoral college is the right thing or the wrong thing. But let's look at how we got here, right? It's the case that Donald Trump became the Republican Party nominee without a majority of support. And, you know, obviously a lot of Republicans not liking him. I mean, there was a big never Trump movement for a long time, you know, and, and how does, so he got like 44% of the vote in the primary, which is, it's been a very, very long time since a party nominee has not gotten the majority of the vote. Um, you know, and obviously the Republican race was pretty broken up into 17 different people. And the way that we vote for people, both in the primary and in the national election, is a first-past-the-post voting system. First-past-the-post means uh, everyone casts a ballot for a person, and the person with the most of those votes wins. Um, it could be significantly less than the majority, right? If you had <clears throat> five people who all had a lot of support running in the election, you know, it could be the the person with 22% support that could, end, you know, in theory, end up winning. Um, and th they would get the nod. Because of that, there's this concept in political science called Duverger's Law. And Duverger's Law says this. Any first-past-the-post voting system within a certain polity, and in this case that polity is the United States, uh, the, number of, the number of parties will ultimately devolve to two. And the reason for that is this. Let's say you have these five different factions who like five different kinds of candidates. Well, what happens is they all want to win as much as they can. And so what they'll do is they'll form coalitions naturally in order to scoop up the plurality of votes. And so, for example, if you have these five candidates and then two of them form a coalition, you now have about, say, 40% support. And they're going to win easily. So what then happens is that pressures other candidates or other factions to form their own coalitions. And these coalitions naturally devolve to two. Because if you're down to three and you have a third, a third, a third, the two that are willing to, you know, make some compromises and work together um, and unite under a single platform are going to win. So this is Duverge's law. The United States will always have a two-party system as long as first-past-the-post voting happens. Um, and what this also means is that if we look back at the primary... What happens is the like coalition that can cobble together, a you know that plurality is able to win. 
it also creates these weird voting incentives for that reason. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about third-party candidates. Gary Johnson looked like he was polling at, you know, 13 14% for a while. He got three. And, you know, if you think about it, if you think about a person's mind, they're going like, oh, well, he's clearly not going to win, so I'm actually going to, like, cast a vote that quote-unquote matters. And then hardcore Gary Johnson fans like, ah, you know, if you voted for Gary, you know, if people that supported Gary Johnson voted for Gary Johnson, like, he would have a chance. Um, and, and you know, they kind of, they kind of, like, shake in fury. And the trick of the matter is that um, it's actually quite rational to vote in order to prevent the person you like least from getting elected in a first-past-the-post two-party system. And so that reinforces the two-party system because it's, you know, once two parties have, you know, an edge, you start going like, well, if I vote for this third party, like, it is a wasted vote because I'm only making this marginal impact here, whereas I could make a marginal impact on a close election between two people with whom I have a pretty strong preference. So the incentive is there to vote for two parties. It's a rational thing to do. People aren't being idiots. It's just an unfortunate consequence of a first-past-the-post voting system. And so, how do you change that to have more options available? And how do you get people to actually vote for people they like? Because it is the case that in this election, these are the two least popular candidates to ever run. They have the most disapproval of two candidates that have ever run since we are, uh, you know, since we have started tracking that. So people, to a large extent, weren't voting for people that they were very excited about. So how do you create incentives for them to do that? One way to do that is called single transferable vote or ranked choice voting or instant runoff. So I'll just call it STV for now for single transferable vote. And the way it works is this. Um, you take, uh, what you do is you rank your candidates from most liked to least liked. So let's say that you're, you know, a Stein fan, Jill Stein. You could vote Jill Stein number one, Clinton number two, Johnson number three, Trump number four. Let's say that that's your preference. You can vote with confidence that you're not, your vote for Stein isn't taking away a vote for Clinton because she's your number two. And how does that specifically work? What it does is it adds up, here's the instant runoff part, it adds up all of the number ones. If someone has a majority, great, they win. If nobody has a majority, they take the person with the fewest number ones and they redistribute those ballots as number twos. So for example, let's say you voted for Stein number one but she got the least number one votes, well, your vote would now move over to your number two, who happened to be Clinton, right? So in this way, you can say, hey, I can vote for Stein number one, but if she doesn't make it, my vote will go to Clinton and I don't have to worry about Johnson or Trump um, getting my vote. Unless, of course, Johnson is significantly more popular than Clinton and Clinton collapses, uh, then your vote would go to Johnson as number three, but at least it wouldn't go to Trump if you don't like Trump, which you probably don't if you're a Stein fan, right? So that's the idea. It is, it does happen in some countries, and uh, it seems to work fairly well. What I like about it is that it creates an incentive to be able to vote for the candidate you like um, without having to worry about throwing the election to the candidate you like least. And I think that, for obvious reasons, that is very, very relevant in this election. So... Why are we talking about a different way of voting, right? Well, despite who you ended up supporting in the general election, I think a topic on which we could actually find a lot of common ground across the political spectrum on right now is this, this sense, this undercurrent that something just isn't really functioning quite right. And I think a lot of people would say that part of that problem is how our primaries work. Also, well how the generals work in terms of trying to prevent your least favorite. But the fact that the primaries tend to encourage candidates that appeal to the most radical elements of that group has obviously played at least some part in this election. So to the extent that we try to, from this point on, find a starting point of common ground to work with each other on again and and. It's easier to work on other things if you can agree on one thing first, then this might be an area on which we can work together on. However, we can't wait two years to try to change the presidential election process because that's when the campaigns will start back up again. Because in America, we have two-year-long campaigns, which is, in my opinion, kind of ridiculous. So it needs to start now. If this is something that you felt 
weird about in the last election that you feel needs to change, now is the time to start putting together a political coalition, a group of like-minded people on either side of the spectrum to try to change how we process votes. And in my mind, that's really a bipartisan issue. Yeah, and Xander, you mentioned something that the primaries tend to lead to the most um, the primaries tend to lead to the most extreme versions of the candidates. And, and why is this? Um, well, the reason is because, of course, in a primary, in most primaries, you only have uh, one party voting, obviously. And so what it means is that to win that party, you need to appeal to that party as opposed to appeal to the entire electorate. And also remember that right now, only about like 28% of people are Democrats and 24% of people are Republicans. So you've already got only half the electorate, and then you're splitting that in half again. So 50% of people don't even get to play. You have the quarters on the edges that are most right and most left that get to play in the primaries and decide who's going to the general in this first-past-the-post system. It also happens to be the case that the more conservative or liberal you are, the more likely you are to donate, vote, campaign, etc. Um, and so what it means is that in order to win the primaries, you don't win by appealing to the most moderate parts of the uh, electorate. You win by appealing to the edges of the electorate that come out and vote in droves. This happens in Congress as well as in uh, the presidency, of course. One of the ways to deal with this problem is, of course, yes, you have you can have single transferable vote, but one of the ways to... There are two other ways to deal with that. One of them is open primaries, in which you don't have to be registered in order to vote in the primary. There are different forms of open primaries. One of them is you can only vote in one primary... One of them is you could vote in both primaries. One of them is called a jungle primary. And we can put links to all this stuff. But these are ways to get people who aren't, you know, who currently aren't part of those fringes on either side to participate in the primaries so that the parties put up people who are competing for, like, the big bulk of voter preferences rather than the fringe of voter preferences. The other problem in Congress that people often want to solve is the fact that a lot of districts are pretty uncompetitive. In fact, almost all of them are pretty uncompetitive. Um, the only thing you need to worry about for most districts, including mine in Cambridge, is getting, quote, primaried, which is you're not left-wing or right-wing enough for your for your party, and so they send someone to the primary to challenge you and unseat you. So, for example, Mike Capuano, who's my my representative, like, he hasn't, no, the Republicans haven't even bothered putting someone up against him for years and years now. It's just like, forget it. So he's in a very safe seat, uh, he only worries about a threat from the left. Now, to some extent, this means that he's representing his district because his district happens to be quite left-wing, but it also means that he doesn't have much incentive to play to the middle and try to find compromise uh, because a lot of people in this district hate Republicans and hate their ideas, um, so they pressure him not to play the game, and it happens on the other side as well. So one of the ways to solve this is, of course, open primaries, but it only helps so much. Uh, this helps in districts that are competitive, that but just happen to put forward a Republican and a Democrat that happen to be kind of fringy. If it's not competitive, open primaries doesn't fix it. The thing that would, a thing that would make non-competitive primary uh, districts competitive is actually grouping districts into bigger groups, maybe as big as the state, and having people vote on multiple representatives in a ranked voting system as opposed to just voting on one. And so what this means is that voices are all heard, like more voices are heard. So, for example, in Massachusetts in 2010, 38 percent of people voted for Republican candidates for Congress. But all 13, all 13 representatives to Congress ended up being Democratic. Right. So you had well more than a third of people that weren't able to get any share of representation um, and they were totally ignored. This happens in red states as well just the opposite. And so if you grouped all these together and you had a ranked voting system, presumably um, some set of, you know, for those Republicans in Massachusetts, some set of Massachusetts-style Republicans would be able to appeal to them. They would get some share of the vote. They would be able to represent that part of the population. Okay. So if you're in the lamentation camp right now, you're probably thinking, oh God, this is the end of the world or at least I've heard some people say as much to me, I don't quite go that far. And maybe this is just a bit of a silver lining if you sit in that camp. I think that a Trump presidency runs the risk of 
putting America in a weaker international position in the next 48 years. I don't think that it will necessarily cause the collapse of our entire system. I mean, people are comparing this to the end of Rome, and then I ask them, yeah, but which Rome? The Roman Empire or the Roman Republic? Because the Republic fell and then the Empire lasted for another 400 years. So I'm not sure which historical comparisons are most apt here. However, let's say that part of Trump's foreign policy, as he's claimed, has been to retreat from the rest of the world to a degree. What could that do? It depends exactly what that retreat looks like. And I think some of the rhetoric has been simplified to interventionist, isolationist in the contemporary dialogue. And I don't think that's really helpful because it doesn't get into the nuance of what being involved in the world means. For example, you could call the current international order a liberal hegemony. And what do I mean by international order? I mean the way that in terms of norms and customs and also the application of force or the threat of application of force, countries have come to interact with one another over the course of the last 70 years after this end of World War II. This also includes the use of multilateral institutions, right? And it, at the core of this order has existed the United States. It has provided the force that has, a lot of people argue, underwritten the relative stability of the world relative to all of the international conflicts that existed before World War II, basically into the very beginning of human history. So if America pulls back, what could some of these effects be? Well, in Europe, if we pull back from NATO, some security experts actually think this is a good thing. Why? Well, because they're saying that European countries are actually not spending enough on their own defense. And this is a problem because it means that America needs to allocate quite a bit of resources to European defense in addition to all of the other theaters that are going on in the rest of the world. So these experts say that by pulling troops out from Europe, it would force through action rather than just words European countries to increase their defense spending to the levels that they've already committed to, but that they've never met, which is about 2% of GDP and 20% of their budget. So this could be a good or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. If you see an increasingly nationalized, polarized Europe with the rise of far-right parties in France and Greece, a far-left party in Spain, and elections coming up in the next two years in France and Germany— you can say, okay, well, maybe there is an increasingly militarized Europe with an increasingly nationalist sentiment and a decreased sense of unity as their European Union begins to lose the sense of legitimacy following Brexit. I don't know what happens there, but that's one thing that could happen. Another thing that could happen is by pulling back and saying, you know what, we're just not going to deal with X, Y, and Z, we open up that leadership position to other countries that do want to have an increased role in the world and the international order. Obviously, this is China. And some people would say Russia, but really Russia is a declining power. And I think that I think that a lot of the saber rattling that's going on now has to do with Putin trying to stir up nationalist sentiment to try to keep some degree of support in his base because his entire regime is on the verge of collapsing. So if the United States pulls back from the rest of the world and we decrease our leadership role in institutions like the IMF that opens up the opportunity for China to become more involved with international investment through the Asian infrastructure bank that they've founded and other multilateral institutions that they've wanted to have a greater role in, but that we've basically not let them have so far. So is that a good thing? I don't know, but China is not a liberal democracy. And if they increase their ability to project power around the world, be it hard power or soft power, which we talk about in a prior episode, I think it's episode 11, that means that there will be a decreased amount of influence and prevalence coming from countries that practice and implement a form of government that is liberal democracy. So that's another potential outcome. But of course, it's hard to really tell what Trump's going to do since he's offered so many contradictory policy positions. 
He has repeatedly talked about pulling out of NATO, so that's why I brought up the European question. However, of course, pulling out of NATO entirely looks different than just pulling some forces back from the European continent. Time will tell. It was quite the night. Uh, I stayed up late watching till Pennsylvania, drinking, and slept in a bit. Now the election's over. Now we have a president-elect, we have a Congress picked, and it's time to figure out what we're going to be as a country, what we're going to do. Remember that democracy isn't just voting on election day. Democracy is an active participation thing. And I think for people who check out, um, or who are thinking about checking out, that's going to do more damage than good. I encourage you guys to think about the voting system and whether you want to change it. The I'll, I'll leave a link, but the organization I'm most familiar with that's doing this work that I think has the most power is Fair Vote, and they're something that you can support if you decide you want to. Um, I encourage you to go check them out. For both sides, think about the people that voted for the other candidate than what you did, and think about what kind of pain and fear that they feel that caused them to vote that way. I think that this is, we've said it before, this is a time for a lot of practice of empathy for us as a country. We didn't fall along the sort of like typical trenches that we dug. These issues weren't, the issues in this election weren't the typical issues that uh, we're used to bickering over. Um, I think this moment of surprise, and, and I think Trump supporters are just as surprised, is an opportunity for us to sit back and go like, huh, I wonder what's really going on, and get curious rather than just get angry. Yeah, and something that's really worth reconsidering, I think, is how we think about one another within our country, how we treat one another. You know, we're not enemies. At the end of the day, we're all Americans. On some degree, we're all on the same side. Rhetoric matters, a phrase that I've taken to lately, and how we talk about one another impacts actions. So we really need to think about what's led to this degree of divisiveness and start thinking about each other differently and more compassionately. So I think now more than ever is a time to not let the pundits do the thinking for you, but pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. And this is Xander signing off. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.